0: Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed in March 2023. First Republic Bank was seized and sold off by government regulators on the first day of May. The $532 billion of assets of these three banks exceeds that of the inflation-adjusted value of $526 billion of the assets of the 25 banks that failed in 2008. There is a question of whether the failures of these three banks are only the first of other bank failures, or if the crisis can be contained. There are also concerns that, just as the 2008 bank crisis contributed to an economic downturn, these contemporary bank failures will also cause a recession. Why are banks subject to failure? Can policies help to make them more stable, and have they? To talk about these issues, I'm very pleased to be speaking today with Jeremy Stein. Jeremy is a professor at Harvard University. He was a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve from 2012 to 2014, and during the global financial crisis, served as a senior advisor to the Treasury Secretary and on the staff of the National Economic Council. Jeremy, welcome to Econofact Chats.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's nice to be with you.
0: Jeremy, what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and what does that tell us about bank fragility?
1: Well, the short story is that Silicon Valley Bank was vulnerable due to a combination of two factors. First of all, it had large losses on its holdings of long-term securities. Think of basically treasuries and mortgage securities. And second and importantly, virtually all, something like 92% of its deposits were uninsured. That is to say they were not insured by the FDIC, which is highly unusual. So to see why you need both of these things kind of at the same time, note that sort of a more traditional bank with insured deposits, if its depositors are both sticky, that is to say they don't leave, and sleepy, that is to say they'll accept a close to zero interest rate on their deposit even as market rates rise. If you have those, the fact that you have market value losses on your securities or on your assets more generally need not be damaging because the value of the deposit franchise actually goes up when interest rates go up in other words it's a better deal to take deposits at zero and be able to reinvest them at five percent than it is to take deposits at zero and only be able to invest them at one percent so the two tend to offset each other one simple way you see this is historically if you look at banks and you look at their net interest margins those net interest margins tend to be quite stable, even as market interest rates move around. So again, banks tend to be hedged, and the assets are not the whole story. But of course, if the deposits can leave, leave or reprice, then you've got a problem, because then you have to actually sell the assets at their um, at their reduced market value. And that's when you get the potential for a self, uh, self-fulfilling run.
0: And so I like that. Um, Those labels of sticky and sleepy depositors, Um, not something you see in bank advertisements, although I guess they would really like them.
1: Well, of course, bank advertising is very, very geared towards, and the whole bank economic model is really geared towards keeping your depositors sticky and sleepy. I mean, that's what makes the whole thing work. That's what differentiates a bank from a hedge fund. A hedge fund obviously has real problems if the market value of its assets fall because all its liabilities are at market rates and they're not at all sticky. But that's that's really kind of the, the, the key difference.
0: So is that why banks traditionally were built like uh, small Roman temples to make people confident and sticky and sleepy?
1: Yep. I mean, you know, my mother is the perfect, my 90-year-old mother is in a sense the perfect bank customer. You know, she she has a fair amount in her checking account at PNC Bank and she goes into the to the branch two or three times a week. She chats with the tellers. They help her do her stuff. And, you know, she'll happily take zero even as market rates go up. But I think and, you know, for people like her, they've built, as you say, they bank spend two percent of their assets, um, you know, uh, every year on on bricks and mortar. Uh, and it's very good for people. It works very well with people like my mother. Uh, the question is how well it has it will work uh, going forward, especially now that a bunch of these sleepers, I think, have been pretty rudely awakened uh, by the events of the last uh, couple of
0: months. So your mother probably doesn't have more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in her account, although maybe she does. I don't know. But a lot of people at Silicon Valley Bank did. Why is that?
1: think, you know, most people, uh, sophisticated and otherwise assume that when you have a deposit in a bank, it's money good. And that assumption has been generally true. Even when banks fail, it has been, whether you like it or not, it is an empirical fact about the world that uninsured depositors, with rare exceptions, don't take losses.
0: And in fact, that's what happened ex post, right? The uninsured depositors were made whole. Absolutely. So depositors didn't have their eye on the ball. It turns out they didn't really have to, I guess, because ex post they were made whole. But shouldn't the management of Silicon Valley Bank have recognized the riskiness of their portfolio and hedged their exposure to prevent such a scenario from playing out?
1: Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a terrible failure, not just on the part of management, but certainly a, a failure on the part of management. Um, just worth noting, you can sort of understand, not to excuse it, but you can kind of understand how they were goaded into that failure. Um, you know, they're basically a wash, as you said, in large deposits. They grew very, very quickly because they were getting huge deposits, uh, in many cases, from people running tech firms. Now, what do you do when you're getting all these wonderful zero interest rate deposits? Well, in a world if, if if we had imagined counterfactually that interest rates on short-term securities were five percent, they could have happily parked the zero deposits and five percent securities, done really well for themselves, and that would have been the end of it. Unfortunately, during much of this period, short-term interest rates themselves were near zero, and you know they have bricks and mortar to pay for or other costs, and so they just couldn't make their cover their expenses uh, without taking some interest rate risk. Again, not to excuse it, but I think the low interest rate environment was part of what goaded them into being what clearly was uh, reckless in terms of their uh, their risk management.
0: I've also heard that Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a risk manager in place for a very long time. Yeah,
1: I don't know about that, but I suspect that even if you were trying to be a risk manager at a place like that, you might get overrun by the incentive, basically, they had to reach for some extra return, and of course they 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 surely underestimated the damage that 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 could do.
0: Well, what about the government regulators? It seems that after two thousand eight, they should have been more focused on bank fragility.
1: Absolutely, and I you know as I said, I mean in in spite of the fact that a lot of blame goes to uh, Silicon Valley bank management, there's also uh, quite a bit of blame to assign to the regulators. I think the one question that's not entirely clear to me, at least at this point, is how much of it represents a regulatory failure in the sense of the rules on the books, as opposed to a supervisory failure, um, you know, going beyond the rules on the, bu- on the books and, and, um, and, you know, looking at what, what the management is actually doing. Uh, I suspect, um, my guess is there will be some, some good opportunities for regulatory reform, But at the same time, I suspect that the supervisory failure is really front and center in this story. Um, And in fact, we know we know that the um, supervisors, the local supervisors inside the bank had raised a number of concerns and various memos, uh, matters requiring attention and so forth were raised. Uh, But what seems to have happened, unfortunately, is that in spite of those memos, the process was just too slow and not strong enough, and really nothing was was forced to change, uh, even though the, the, some of the weaknesses were clearly, uh, clearly spotted.
0: As I mentioned at the outset, these banks had a lot of assets, and under prior rules, they would have been deemed systematically important financial institutions, SIFIs. SIFIs are subject to greater scrutiny, but the threshold was changed from $50 billion to $250 billion in assets. So these banks are no longer under the rubric of being a SIFI. The regulators still had an opportunity to supervise these banks and look at the books. But do you think it was important that the SIFI threshold was changed and so they didn't automatically get supervised as much as they might have?
1: Well, look, I think the changing in the threshold was certainly symptomatic of a broader attitudinal change or swinging of the pendulum back uh, towards a maybe we might call it a slightly more relaxed attitude uh, which was unfortunate and 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 not a good thing whether some of the specific rules that they would have faced at, had they maintained sort of the, the 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 stricter stress testing and all whether those would have made the crucial difference it's a little less obvious to me so for example had they been stress tested annually you know, as they would have been under the prior under the prior rule, that would have unfortunately not made a difference because the, str- the Fed stress test did not contemplate a meaningfully higher interest rate scenario. Okay, so again, I absolutely buy the premise that there's going to be need to be a fresh look at the regulatory, you know, at the, the sort of whole reg- set of regulatory um, tools applied to these guys. I think it's a little too easy to just say, oh, had we not had this two- 2018 Uh, rollback, things would have been okay. And again, I think you just need to be careful in assuming that regulation itself, no matter how well intentioned or how well written, is ever going to really be a full solution to the problems, right? You write a rule in stone, then you go away, then the banks have at it and they optimize. There's no way a rule by itself is going to catch every contingency. Hence the importance of really vigorous, active supervision that responds with a bit more agility to to conditions on the ground. And I think one of the real stories of the last several years is not only regulatory, but it's the the weakening, the disempowering of supervision.
0: What about contagion? Signature Bank failed soon after Silicon Valley Bank and after Silvergate Bank self-liquidated. Some people argue that Signature Bank was a victim of contagion. Concerns were ignited by the failure of these other banks, and it was swept up in this pessimistic wave. But an FDIC report from the end of April said that its collapse was due to poor management. What's your view of what happened with Signature Bank?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's always some degree of contagion in the sense that even when a very weak bank gets run on, it's not clear exactly when it's going to happen or what the trigger will be. So so two things can simultaneously be true. It can be true that the banks that are run on, you can really see it in the fundamentals. Again, that the common fundamental in all of these cases is large losses due to interest rate increases on their books of securities and a relatively large fraction of uninsured deposits. That's a real fundamental. Now the timing is not coincidental, right? Once it happens to one, then other than people start looking very carefully at others who have a similar a similar profile. So there's contagion in that sense, but it, it doesn't it shouldn't be taken to mean that if the first one hadn't failed, the others were were all just totally fine.
0: So you talk about fundamentals. Was that true for First Republic as well? It was the second largest bank failure in US history.
1: Yeah, I mean again, I think all of these guys had this common profile to some extent um, of large losses. It's just simply due, if nothing else, to, to, to rising interest rates, as well as a large fraction of uninsured deposits. Basically, if you line banks up on those two metrics together, it's going to be the interaction of the two that, that gives you a very good sense of, of, of who's vulnerable.
0: So as you mentioned, people withdrew their money from these banks because the deposits were in excess of the $250,000 insured level. But all the depositors were made whole when regulators invoked the systemic risk exception. Do you think it was a good idea to protect depositors in this way?
1: Well, look, there's always going to be some discomfort. And it's completely understandable, of course, to see very wealthy people made whole when they weren't supposed to, in some sense, be made whole. I think with the benefit of hindsight, you can see very clearly the dilemma that the, that the Fed and the FDIC were in which is exactly that, you know, there are other banks exposed. There's been real kind of concerns about contagion. I think they were unfortunately backed into a corner and had really little choice. Uh, That doesn't mean you don't wanna do things going forward that make it less likely that you get backed into this corner. I think one thing we've learned, again, for better or for worse, I'm not putting a value judgment, but for better or for worse, uninsured depositors tend to get taken care of. If you just take that as a a fact about the world, it makes you ask, well, should we limit the extent to which banks can have large fractions of either uninsured or total deposits uh, relative to their assets? So, for example, you could imagine, in addition to having a capital requirement, banks of this size, much like larger banks, should have long-term debt requirements. So In other words, you could imagine, just as as an example, 10% of your capital structure is equity, but another 20% is long-term debt, so total deposits can never be more than 70%. The difference is, of course, long-term debt can't run because it's long-term, and therefore it's credible uh, to impose losses on it in a way that's harder to do with runnable deposits. Um, So Again, I, I think policy at least has to be I'm not saying we should affirmatively go out and insure all deposits, but policy has to be robust to the reality that, in fact, when push comes to shove, it's very difficult to impose losses on, uh, on, on on any depositor.
0: Not everyone fared as well as depositors, I guess, nor should they. People who held the stocks and bonds of these banks found their holdings wiped out. Managers lost their jobs, but perhaps there were some golden parachutes. Is it appropriate that these people suffered financial losses the way they did?
1: Yes, absolutely. And you just, you know, my previous comment is just to say we need more of that in the capital structure. So there's more loss absorbing sources of finance and therefore more protection if if nothing else for the taxpayer um, uh, in cases like these.
0: So I'm very sensitive to economists not wanting to make predictions. Um, I myself try to avoid it, but I'm going to put you in the uncomfortable position now of asking a prediction. Do you have a sense whether this will be it, or if the problems common to these three banks, four if you count Silvergate, are widespread and will continue to see bank failures?
1: Well, a couple of points. I would like to hope that the sort of short run run dynamics are largely behind us. I think that's likely. It's not a sure thing. You know, in 2008, the FDIC had a much bigger bazooka, they were able to to ensure, to blanket ensure all transactions, deposits in the entire banking system. That's an authority that they no longer have, that Congress took away from them. Now, the only way to ensure all deposits in the banking system is through, it would have to go through Congress. So there is a vulnerability, there's an ongoing vulnerability to this sort of run risk, um, because really now the only way they have to protect depositors is to invoke the systemic risk exemption after the fact. After the bank has already been run on. So I think, you know, it's there there, there there is still some residual uncertainty, but I'm modestly optimistic that the run stuff is behind us. Now, having said that, I don't think the broader problem is behind us at all. Um, even with no runs, even if you had complete insurance uh, of the sector, there's a real problem with the economics, which is if deposits reprice more rapidly than they have in the past. As I said at the beginning, the entire banking model is predicated not only on depositors staying, but on them accepting relatively low, below market rates of interest. But you know, this has pre- presumably woken up a lot of depositors. There's gonna be more, I, I'm pretty sure, there's gonna be more deposit repricing than there has been in the past. If that is the case, even if they're not uh, subject to runs, the banks may, may basically have Quite a bit of damage done to their profitability, and there could be a gradual but pretty painful depletion of bank capital. Here, I think you know one potential analogy to worry about is what happened to savings and loans in the in the late 80s, um, when you know they had mostly insured deposits, so runs weren't the problem, but interest rate mismatch basically uh, imposed very very large uh, uh, you know hits to their profits. Eventually, ate up most of their capital and led to a bunch of, you know, uh, a bunch of bad decision making, and ultimately pretty large cost to the taxpayer. So I think we may be dealing with problems in the banking system uh, over this, over a several year period, again, even if we don't have to worry so much about uh, kind of imminent run risk.
0: So, Jeremy, what do you see as appropriate policy responses, given what's happened, and also given what we learned from the savings and loan crisis, and what we learned from the Great Financial Crisis in two thousand and eight.
1: So a couple of things, as I said, you know, there's some there's some reg reform kinds of things. I mean, I, I, again, I think one has to take a very careful look at the supervisory process and see what went wrong and how that can be improved. Um, I think there are going to be some natural changes or sort of some relatively low hanging fruit changes to regulation. One being. What what I mentioned before is the idea of having some long-term debt in addition to equity in some of these institutions. You could imagine the FDIC changing its deposit insurance pricing so as to basically impose a bit of a tax, a bit of a Pigouvian tax on uninsured deposits to discourage the use of uninsured deposits, have a higher deposit insurance premium. So there's all of that. Um, and then at the same time, I think the you know regulators are going to have to potentially contend with the longer run health of the, of the banking system. And in this case, not necessarily the very biggest banks, but the regional and the smaller banks. At some point, uh, we're going to get to a point where there needs to be new capital put into the system. But I think not only new capital, there's going to be a need for some consolidation because if deposits reprice more aggressively than they do, and if that's a feature, you know, that, that may well be like work from home after the pandemic. Once you learn to do it, you kind of stay with it. So if that's true of the way deposits price, that does real damage to the economic model of a lot of these banks. And, you know, that's th- this is a harder problem to deal with because I think the short-run temptation is going to be more of what you've seen, more reassurance that everything is okay, the banking system is sound, not a lot of appetite to do tough Uh, stress testing, that kind of thing. But at some point, I think that the need for that is going to become pretty pretty pronounced.
0: So that's a discussion of what's happening in the banking sector. What do you see as the consequences for the overall economy?
1: Well, clearly, I think there's going to be some contraction of credit, particularly coming from the regionals and the smaller banks. So that is a bit of a, that is going to be something of a headwind to the economy. Of course, it's something that the Fed will, uh, as the data comes in, you know, take into account in their interest rate trajectory. So they can, you know, to the extent that the credit crunch is, is a headwind, the Fed can hike less than it otherwise would or pause. I'm not sure that it is something that has to cause, if it's, if it's properly adjusted for, has to cause big macroeconomic damage in the sense of unemployment output loss. I worry about it more as an allocative issue. Again, you know, the bond market is going to be open. There are going to be a bunch of other things, but of course, that then favors big firms at the expense of small firms, big firms will be relatively less hurt by a bank credit crunch because they can borrow in the bond market. They have other ways of raising money. This could be quite painful for smaller firms. Again, the fed can undo some of the macroeconomic effect, much harder to undo the allocative effect, the fact that some industries may consolidate as the big firms gain market share at the expense of smaller firms and all of that. So I think that's that's that would be my worry more so than that this is going to really ultimately change the, the, the trajectory for inflation and unemployment.
0: But not 2008, 2009 seizing up of markets, the economy going into a deep downturn.
1: I don't see that at this point. Again, I, I worry about this more as an s um, or maybe even a Japan kind of scenario where we have you know, a, a set of zombie banks, bad lending decisions, a lot of micro distortions. But I think at this point, the overall system is strong enough. And of course, the big banks are strong enough. There doesn't seem to be the kind of post Lehman in any way, the kind of post Lehman financial Stress to the entire system that, that we saw back then.
0: Well, um, I always learn a lot in my conversations with you, Jeremy, and thank you very much for joining me today and talking about this really important issue.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: This has been Aconifact Chats. To learn more about Conafact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.conafact.org. The Conifact kind of is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.